Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. Uh, with me this week will be Trevor Adams. Um, and next week we will be back with Tom Velasco in our uh, recording of Book 9. Or I say next week, the next time that I'm able to get it up. Which leads me into one apology. I know these are coming out a little bit randomly. Um, it's been a little hard. Uh, I'm, I'm expecting my first child, so it's been a little bit uh, hard to get some of these out. So my apologies, but this week we do have book eight, a conversation between uh, Trevor and Chad, and we will be thinking through exactly what changes for Augustine in book eight when he becomes a Christian, when he finally uh, turns toward God. And so um, the the great word uh, conversion, Augustine sort of converts, but as the Latin indicates, it's a turn. So Augustine turns toward God. He is freed from the shackles of his sin um, and turns to face God and walks toward God. And so from this book, we get such great lines as tole lege, tole lege, take up and read, as well as, O Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Um, so some of the most famous lines from Confessions actually come from book eight. So we hope that you'll enjoy this conversation where Trevor and I really dig deep into what happens to our appetites when they are chained to sin and what happens uh, when they are freed to see the good that God has to offer. So hopefully this conversation will be beneficial to you. Uh, I've had several comments on the Facebook page, so we appreciate those. I hope to be able to answer some of those on the podcast the next time that we record. Um, as well as I've seen that we've had a few more ratings and reviewings on iTunes. Again, we really appreciate your uh, encouragement and involvement. And actually, we're nearing 100,000 episodes, or excuse me, 100,000 downloads. Um, so we are, you know, really appreciate uh, your all involved, uh, everybody's involvement and, and support of this podcast. So it's cool that we're finally getting to 100,000 downloads. Uh, we hope you enjoy this episode and we will be back. Um, the, the next recording will be on book nine. So hopefully that'll be out in probably about two weeks. Thank you very much. And please do rate us, review us on iTunes. Check out our Patreon account if you want to consider supporting us. We would appreciate um, some help deferring the costs of hosting this podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, so we are going to talk about book eight today. Uh, book eight. So we, uh, Trevor and I did book seven. Uh, that recording should, will go up soon. Um, I, I mean, at the time that this is out, it, it should already be up. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so book seven was his sort of intellectual, um, wranglings with Neoplatonism and Christianity. So it's Augustine trying to get his thoughts straight. Um, this is my really simple overview. I would say, in a sense, Book Seven is Augustine finally getting wrapping his head around uh, Christianity, and maybe Book Eight is sort of wrapping his heart around Christianity. Um, to be a little, you know, simple. Um, but to me, but what's interesting to me about Book Eight versus Book Seven is Book Eight is about will and desire. Um, and the whole thing is him trying to come to terms with the fact that he has been captivated by other things besides God for most of his life. Um, and now he thinks that Christianity is probably true, uh, but he's not really sure how to like give himself to it because he's held back um, by, uh, by other desires. And on the first page of, of book eight, he says, I long to be more firmly established in you than more convinced about you. So he's sort of convinced about him, but he wants to be established, stabilior in Latin. So he wants to be more stable in him. 
And, and I'm not exactly sure that's not a common way to talk about one's relationship to God, even for Augustine, but it gives you this sense that he wants to be set firm um, in his, de- and, and I think the important thing is firm in his, is in his desire for God. So we'll get to um, his captive desires, um, but, but just to start the conversation off in, in book eight, one point two, uh, for me, the next page, uh, he says, but I was unhappy with the fact that I was still living a secular life, um, seculo. Um, I was living in a different age in the age of the Romans, basically not in the age of Christ. Um, and then that one put me under great strain. Now that I no longer had any burning desires as previously hoping for distinction and wealth to make such a burdensome enslavement bearable. No longer, no longer did those factors attract me in preference to your sweetness and the beauty of your house, which I, which I now loved. But I was still very much entangled on account of a woman. Uh, not that the apostle forbade me to marry, though he did urge me toward the better choice. Um, so where is Augustine at the beginning of this book? So he's, he's, he believes in the truth of Christ. He feels drawn to Christ more so than his desire uh, for for um, sort of worldly success, but the one thing, the one in, uh, encapsulating desire, the one thing blocking him from from pure entrance into the church and pure love of Christ is his love of his wife, uh, or not his wife of a woman. I, excuse me, his yeah. second concubine, um, <laughs> if we're keeping track. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so he still wants this sexual – he still is so encapsulated by sexual desire, he can't break free. Yeah, that's – yeah, that exactly sums it up. He wants to stop merely reasoning about God. He wants to um, rest in God, as my translation puts it. Uh-huh. But it's woman still held, held me firmly in her grasp. And so he's going to – form a relationship with a well actually does he form a relationship with simplician or yep uh-huh you yeah. know he yeah so simplicianus is so yeah yeah and then goes and from there basically yeah we're gonna get this he's gonna have his what i call like sort of romans 7 chapter 7 yeah. moment yeah. <laughs> um where you know because paul's like do all this stuff I don't want to do. And it just seems, you know, Paul just in Romans just kind of quickly goes, well, this is just how it is. It sucks. Who will save me from this uh, life of sin and death? And it's Jesus. And that's how he kind of concludes this whole weird puzzle. But of course, Augustine being who he is, he kind of like sits in the puzzle Um for a second talks about how weird it is that we have basically this contradiction of wills within us um which yeah. that part for me was the the most interesting um but yeah but there's yeah, a, for sure there's some build up to that so i guess we'll start there well so one thing that I think we should even say you you just reminded me of this you said that the love that the woman gripped me um, and I, I think to be fair, what he's going to say is that's the love and the desire of the woman that gripped him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's not that there's one particular person. Um, it almost doesn't matter who the woman is for Augustine. 
And this is maybe partly why he doesn't name her. Um, it's it's not in a way. I don't think again. I don't think it's a, to do a disservice to her. But I think what he wants you to know is that it's a desire within him um, that has been captivated uh, by the wrong thing. Um, and so and that so it, so he calls it um, cupiditatibus uh, uh, or cupiditas um, is this kind of negative desire. Um, and sometimes it's uh, concupiscentia as well. So there are two kinds of, of sort of negative desires um, that, that Augustine will uh, discuss. Um, and at least at this part, it's, it's cupiditas. Um, and these kind of desires are, um, are for the wrong thing. But he's not going to exchange desire for no desire. Um, I think some people look at people like Augustine and even some of the monastics and think there are people without desires. It's not that they have no desires. It's not that rationality and being intellectual cuts you off from wanting something. Um, it's that you change your desires. Your desires are no longer for sinful things, but for good things. And so the exchange isn't for a cupiditas for no cupiditas, but cupiditas for caritas. Um, it's for a desire for God and love of God. Um, and so he'll say things um, later on. He'll talk about do he, he's speaking to God. He says, Dulesque, uh, Dulesche, uh, grow sweet, um, dear God. Um, he wants God to be so sweet and so say, uh, tasty, or tasty sounds bad. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so to taste so sweet to him, which again has a negative connotation, I guess too. Uh, but, to yeah. but to be, but to be so desirous, um, that that desire would replace his negative desire. Right. Yeah. This is, yeah. Uh, th this part that, let me restart all those sentences. What you just said is very enlightening because that part of the text uh, reminded me of a lot of different sort of philosophies of desire and changing your will and living the best life, that sort of thing. The Stoics, of course, were really big on forming habits. Obviously, Aristotle's like ethics is based on forming habits. And so there's sort of a, there's even a push, I feel like nowadays to sort of reestablish living your best life as forming good habits. But of mm -hmm. course this directly connects to this. It sounds, it doesn't sound like it when you talk about, um, when you talk about in really lofty terms, like, um, will, like willing the good and like, uh, I guess when you put it all in positive willing terms or negative willing terms, it doesn't sound like habit. But habit really seems to be a good English word to actually uh, talk about having the right appetites, because that's more that's what right. Augustine's going to want. And that's this, right. And this definitely influenced someone I'm more familiar with, Aquinas, obviously, <laughs> but who I keep bringing up. But this is another instance uh, where there's a, a huge influence, obviously, on Aquinas and thus on a lot of... Uh, other Christian philosophers as well, uh, that you, you do have to end up basically creating the right appetite, but it's ultimately going to be, well, uh, I guess we'll get to that. And when we get to this part of the book, but it's ultimately going to be God's grace. That's that right. Does this in you. So, 
So how do you freely choose God though still? So I guess that's the, that's the fun puzzle that we'll talk about, but the story leading up to it, right? So we start with Simplician, who is, I'm probably saying it wrong, but who is, uh, he had been a, he had been a father to Ambrose. That's right. That's how my, my translation puts it. Does that mean mm-hmm. basically he was like a father figure to Ambrose? I'm assuming. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and it he, may it may be kind of like his sponsor at baptism as well, but um, because it says um, in Acadiana Gratia Tuncopiscopi Ambrose. Oh no, sorry, the not baptism in his. Uh, um, I think that he might have like designated him bishop. Um, so he was sort of the like in the line of succession before Ambrose of mm. of the bishopric in Milan. Okay. Okay. So that would be the the equivalent is um Valen uh, no wait Va- not Valentinus uh or yeah Valentinus was um Augustine's sort of father before him at Hippo. Oh okay all right that makes sense. Yeah so he tells him that he has read the Platonists, uh who were translated into Latin by Victorinus. Mm-hmm. Um. And then we kind of get this interesting story about Victorinus, which... Well, yeah, yeah. so I, I don't... Okay, so that's that's good. So I don't want to talk too long about Victorinus because I really want to get to Augustine's change in will, which we just set up, but um, a little previous to this. But I will say of Victorinus, uh, he's a yeah, well-known uh, Platonist. Pro- we think this is how Augustine was first introduced to um to platonism probably through victorinus's writings um uh because it it doesn't appear that augustine became very fluent in greek until later in his life um but uh there's some debate about that in the scholars but the one thing that i wanted to hear sort of uh uh, uh, trevor's take on the victorinus um not only victorinus's conversion necessarily so victorinus is a platonist philosopher um, or actually professor of rhetoric at Rome, but also a Platonist and philosopher. Um, and he converts to Christianity, and there's sort of this long story where Simplicianus leads him to faith. Um, but what is interesting is um, in, in the conversation with Simplicianus, um, he, uh, Augustine says um, that he... Um, he prefers that, uh, or he's glad that Augustine has learned philosophy and especially Neoplatonism. Um, and so he says, he congratulated me for not having happened upon the writings of other philosophers, for they are full of falsehood and de- deceits in accordance with the principles of this world. Whereas God and his word were intimately, intimately enmeshed in the Neoplatonist works in every way. So for me, that's the very beginning of book eight, uh, two, three. Um, and so, so somehow the all the other philosophers get it wrong, but Neoplatonism is so close um, to Christianity um, that that it's better that he studied that. So I guess we could just stop there for a second uh, and, and see how you uh, respond to that. Well, I mean, it makes sense given things Neoplatonists said. I'm by no means a neoplatonist expert but like i'm aware of a few sort of core doctrines they had they definitely believed in um 
having a soul and your soul being enlightened by the true light. And they uh, thought that the things of this world were lesser and thus you were, you were achieving goods of the soul rather than goods of this world. I mean, a lot of this stuff sounds super Christian. And even if you grew up in like an American Protestant evangelical church, like I did, if, and then you start to read just a little Plato, you instantly start to see the similarity. So I, I would imagine, because the Neoplatonists were almost like a Platonic cult. I know it's maybe not right to use that phrase, and I'm not a historian, but like I, that's kind of how I view them. They were, I don't want to say that though, too, because I think it's legitimate to just follow a philosophy. So uh-huh. maybe they were just... Maybe they were just actually living out their philosophy, which is good to do and noble and people don't do anymore <laughs> unless you're like Peter Singer or something. Yeah. But, um, but so I don't know, I guess it's good that they did that, but they also had like a weird, I felt like they made parts of Plato weird and cult like, but all that said, the Neoplatonists definitely had parallels to Christianity. So I could certainly see an early Christian, you know, Bishop, thinking something like this um but yeah uh aquinas proves that that's wrong so there (laughs) well (laughs) yeah so it's it's i mean it's just sort of this is real uh inside baseball kind of stuff but uh, it's interesting among people who study the early the church fathers kind of like i do there are people who like the platonist elements and there are people who hate it um, but even the people who like the Platonist elements of Christianity don't always associate Augustine in their ranks. If you really seem to like Plato and your philo- and your theology, you you probably study more Origen um, or Gregory of Nyssa mm. or Nazianzen. Um, if you don't like as much Plato in your theology, um, you probably go the Western tradition, which comes through Aquinas, as you just stated. Um, which and Aquinas is a great reader and lover of Augustine. Um, among others, um, but he's, you know, definitely part of his canon, uh, or, well, not his canon, I guess, in the sense of his scripture, but part of his authorities that he draws on. Um, For sure. And, and uh, not, not, you know, maybe not to the same degree as, as, as Aristotle or others, but, he, but Augustine is there. Um, so it's just sort of interesting that Augustine is kind of a Neoplatonist, but kind of not. Um, and... Uh, yeah, a hundred percent. He like when I was taught Augustine in an actual like medieval philosophy course, I was introduced to him as a Platonist. It was just, and he was on one side of because it's so much easier to teach undergrads that it's Plato versus Aristotle, uh-huh. and so I was always taught, you know, it's Plato versus Aristotle. Augustine's. And then when you go into the medieval period, it's just the same story. Um, and here's a pl- here's a Platonist, here's an Aristotelian. But then, obviously, if you start to learn your Aristotle, you learn first of all, Aristotle's not so obviously opposed to Plato. I mean, he he kind of he has his own forms. He just doesn't think they're what Plato's forms are. He's he's wor- he's very much working within Platonism in ways. Um, and then by the time you get to Augustine, who gets lumped in with medievals, but is he technically late ancient? I don't know. So Peter, a... <laughs> Peter Peter Brown, the great historian uh, from Princeton, put creates basically the field of late 
the late ancient history. Um, like a lot of people say, if you want, if you call something late ancient, it's because of Peter Brown. Um, uh, and so, cause it used to be that Augustine was the first medieval, um, like August, like, uh, well, or the great French, uh, historian, um, Henri Maru, uh, Irene Henri Maru, um, um, yeah, I don't know. You're, you're sort of like Irenaeus Henry Maru. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, he said that, um, he said that Augustine is the end of the ancient world. Um, and uh, Le Femme de la Couture Antique is his great work. And so sort of for him, it ends with um, Augustine. But August- either way, Augustine is kind of the hinge. Um, and Peter Brown says, really, we should talk about this whole period as being late ancient. And there's more to it than just Augustine. And yeah. Well, Christian philosophy, at least, it's like, there's this weird thing in philosophy classes, I feel like, where if it's Christian, it's automatically medieval. Because I've even heard people incorrectly call, like, you know, Basil of Caesarea a medieval philosopher. Mm. And I'm like, oh, by not any stretch of the imagination is that true for going by historical periods. But, like, anywho, that was all just to point out that there is, anyway, he gets lumped in as one or the other. So, I'm just going to pick medieval because that's who cares. It's all arbitrary to me anyway, as far as I'm concerned. But um, yeah, so he, he gets, yeah. So it's just exactly what you're saying. I'm just going to reiterate. He gets branded as this Platonist against the Aristotelian who ends up like essentially winning um, as everyone says, but um, yeah, not really because Augustine First of all, I think we've pointed out already throughout the other books that we've pointed out these little moments where he gives these really simple, sweet, and short arguments that predate a lot of arguments we end up hearing by other medieval philosophers from, you know, Boethius to Duns Scotus to Aquinas, like all sorts of medieval philosophers end up uh, parroting a lot of argu- arguments that are just different versions of arguments that we already see in Augustine. And so clearly, you know, Augustine's smart, obviously, but he also, he, he's, he seems to be of a personality that would appreciate Plato, and I could see why, and I could see, given the way he's such a passionate Christian, I could see why he would have been perhaps drawn to Platonism, but his, his mind is um, pretty practical though as well. And I think, and sort of down to earth in a lot of ways that would make sense for someone who would be interested in Aristotelian type arguments, little short, sweet syllogisms that just get to the point. And uh, Augustine just throws them out like they're no big deal. He doesn't even dwell on them. Uh, really, he'll kind of just, he'll give like basically a version of the ontological argument, like it's just obvious Uh and just kind of move on and do it really poetically. And so he's just, to me, he's just a a much more poetic Aristotelian (laughs) who obviously was influenced by Platonistic ideals. I'll call them that because they're more like things, they're more like, 
ideals for a human to achieve or something rather than they are, you know, necessarily steeped in like Platonist metaphysics because he doesn't seem to really obviously ends up sort of rejecting the Platonists, but um, so ends up therefore rejecting a lot of their metaphysics. So yeah, anyway, that was all just to say um, the the two biggest branches in philosophy for those who are the non-philosophers are the metaphysics and epistemology when you're saying how the world is and how we know about the world. And thus to reject really a philosophy to me is to reject those two things. You're going to, even if you maintain part of their ethics, even if you sort of talk like them still, you're ultimately rejecting that school philosophy. Mm -hmm. And thus there's a way in which Augustine clearly ends up being not very Platonistic and not uh, in both his metaphysics and his epistemology. So yeah, anyway, well, and, and I, I, I do want to move on, but I think this is an interesting conversation in part because, you know, what, like we, you talked about the ease of explaining as some people do to undergrads that, yeah, there's sort of, uh, Aristotle and Plato and they're different and, you know, there's sort of two schools, but it's even interesting that in Neoplatonism, uh, by the late ancient period, there's a a lot of overlap. Like actually the only book that Augustine mentions by name is a book by Aristotle. Um, Is there Aristotle's 10 categories? Um, Right. And so he talks about the books of the Platonists. We actually don't even know precisely what those are. Um, And he calls, so, and the term Neoplatonism is a late, uh, is a modern category. It's not a word that Augustine uses. Neoplatonism is not in his vocabulary. Um, he just calls them the book of the Platonists. Um, and we don't exactly know who the Platonists are specifically for Augustine. Um, but we know that generally people who are called Neoplatonists now have influences from, um, uh, you know, as wide as Plato, Aristotle, and Pythagoras. Um, a lot of Pythagoreanism. Um, it, you know, rises up here. So there's just a, it's just a, it's a really hard to parse some of this out, but yeah, I think, I think there's a lot that we'll even, uh, get to hopefully today where Augustine looks more, talks more about habits, um, and looks more, you know, more like we've already talked about and, and probably has more affinity with, with some of these Aristotelian categories or things that'll come up, uh, in Aquinas, uh, God willing, if we should ever get to him. (laughs) <laughs> yes exactly um yeah so and i only brought up actually the whole reason i brought up victor is more i was just trying to tell this story real quick but it's yeah he's talking to simplician simplician converts victor i thought there was an interesting we don't need to dwell on it but it was an interesting discussion of victor being like a celebrity who converts mm-hmm. and sort of the importance of celebrity versus the importance of people unknown and Augustine kind of explains that it's not as if that just because Victor Ines was rich or anything like that, that it mattered that he converted. But the reason I'm dwelling on his conversion is that he was sort of one of, he, oh, I, don't, I forget the phrase. He like says he's like basically one of Satan's tools. Mm. Like he was like Satan's sword because Victor Ines was like a really good rhetorician directing people toward like the ancient uh, pagan traditions and, and like to take him down, I guess, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't think that's how Augustine would put it, but to, to bring him to Christ though, was sort of this win for that reason. It wasn't so much that, uh, 
we should dwell on just celebrity conversions. But I thought it was relatable because that still happens today. People freak out if a movie star ends up being Christian more than, you know, their neighbor, which yeah. seems sort of inappropriate sometimes, but I don't know. Well, and the last thing I'll say about the conversion of Victorinus is um, he, he the, immediately after all the Neoplatonist stuff, he does talk about um, accepting the humility of Christ. Um, and as I was telling um, – uh, and at the end of the conversion in, um, in 8.2.3, he says, Now he was not ashamed to be a child of your Christ and a baby baptized by you, bending his neck to the yoke of humility, his head submitting to the shame of the cross. And so one of the, one of the things that Augustine will say in his sermons, actually, is that sort of the Platonists get a lot of things right, but they also get it all wrong because it makes them proud and arrogant. Um, and so they need to learn to accept humility, which they learn through Christ. Um, and so there, you know, so that even that plays in the Victorinus conversion, um, Victorinus demonstrates this for Augustine before he goes through the process, um, of converting. Right. Um, uh, moving to four, nine, um, just, to, I, I mentioned this a little bit in passing at the beginning, but he says, rouse your, uh, eight, four, nine, rouse yourself to action. O Lord, summon and call us, kindle and capture us, set us on fire, make yourself desirable to us. Let us fall in love. Let us run to you. Um, he, uh, yeah, it's just such a, um, um, so grow sweet, burn, um, capture, uh, let us love and let us run. I mean, this is right again. I just, I, I think that sometimes theologians and philosophers can get this sort of, um, bad rap as being people who are studious and, and, and lovers of knowledge. Um, and so, uh, have no desire and no, um, passion and fire. Augustine is all passion and fire. Um, that's, this whole thing is about how he wants God, uh, to be so lovely and lovable. Um, and, uh, that's his prayer, um, that he would fall in love with God. Which I just think is it, – it's sort of fascinating to me because most people who end up reading Augustine are people who've done a lot of time studying, and it just feels like a passionless pursuit. Um, it's like mm -hmm. a dead thing with old, dusty books and a dead language um, from dead authors, and the only thing that you can think of is that they're all dead. <laughs> and it's all <laughs> dead and lifeless. Um, but the, this guy is literally, I mean, you know, the, the icons of Augustine always have him with a burning heart, um, uh, because he is a man on fire and probably the first one to use, well, maybe not, I don't know. The one that's probably first associated with that phrase. Yeah, certainly. Uh, uh, it's, I mean, we've, I think pointed it out in our delight at finally getting to Augustine, at least Tom was very vocal about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like compared to a lot of the things we were reading, uh, that did match sort of that stereotype of being cold and dead. Uh, this is precisely why at least this work is really refreshing. I mean, I've actually never read anything else by Augustine. I don't know if he's, if he's less passionate in other works, but. The confessions certainly are very passionate, but I mean, you would know better than me. Um, so the, there's a, 
yeah, the, the feel of say city of God is very different because it's not a prayer. Um, and so, you know, we have to remember, uh, that actually, you know, we were talking about the medievals, right. Um, but Anselm, um, will follow in, uh, in his monologion and proslogion. These are all, these are prayers, um, hit, like the ontological argument for the existence of God, um, a dry thing, if there has or ever was one is in the middle of a prayer. Um, and just the same way that Augustine frames the confessions as a prayer, uh, the later theologians do their theology um, as part of their love for God um, and in their conversation with God. Right. Okay. Yeah, um, that's true. And so, but his, his city of God is, um, is directed at the pagans. Um, and so he's trying to make a defense of Christianity to the pagans. And so it has a whole, it's, it's actually super sarcastic. Um, and, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's a very different feel, um, than, than, uh, the confessions or his sermons. Uh, part of what I write about is him as a public speaker, um, as a preacher, which has a different feel either from the confessions, um, or from the city of God. He, um, this is somewhat debated you know, there are, uh, people who study what I study who say that the commentaries and the sermons are all kind of of a piece. But I, I, to me, it's very evident that Augustine's extemporaneous preaching um, is a whole separate sort of task and endeavor um, than when he sets down to write um, Confessions or City of God or De Trin. Um, it's, it's just a whole different thing. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Each so this is really... This, sorry, what? So each one of those is is very different. Daytrin is more like the Confessions, but um, than than City of God, but yeah. Okay, um, yeah, and then he so, uh, looking back at it, he sort of sees or he hears the tale of Victorinus, and this is what inspires, uh, Augustine, and. This is now. Now we're getting to the story of. Let's see. He says, "One day, Nebridius was absent. I forget why." <laughs> um, and he's hanging out with um, his friend. Oh, what's his friend? So he's name? with Olympius Eli um, and That's yeah. It. So he's with Olympius and another guy who we don't know, Pontitianus. Uh, uh, Pontikianus, um, who's another African. Um, uh, actually, it's, it's okay. interesting that he points that out on, on uh, 8614. Uh, 8, he was a fellow citizen of ours in that he was African, um, and he had a, po a position of distinction at court. Um, there's, uh, I, I just was reading something. There's, there's now a center for the study of ancient African Christianity or something. Um, I can put a link up to it, but talks about reading the church fathers as African. So Cyril of Alexandria, um, St. Augustine of Hippo, um, Anthony of the desert, a a a Athanasius, um, all three of these guys are an origin of Alexandria. Um, all of these people are African, are African. Tertullian. Tertullian African is too, African. Right? Cyprian is African. Um, yeah. Um, Justin is from Rome. Um, but it's just interesting. The Cappadocian fathers are Asia minor or Asian. Um, 
But uh, yeah, it's actually funny how many of them are not European. Um, yeah. And most of the church fathers are African. Um, and yeah, actually, we wouldn't have what we call Trinitarian Christianity um, without Africans. Um, it is, hmm. uh, yeah, most of what is determinatively Christian is because of the influence of Africans. Very interesting. Something definitely worth remembering. Yeah. Um, and, and Africans, I mean, now, you know, like, we, you know, what colors, if, you know, there's like, we could talk about like how, you know, they spoke Latin and Greek, um, Coptic, um, some of these other languages. But I mean, yeah, they're all from the continent of Africa. We think that Augustine's mother was Punic, or she was Punic. We know she was. How much... Uh, Punic Augustine actually spoke is again under some debate, but he knew it. Um, so Punic is a a somewhat native language to Africa. We know about the movement from Phoenicia, um, from uh, Palestine to North Africa before, say, um, Hannibal um, and and the the Carthaginians of the third fourth centuries BC E BC. Um, you know, they, they're, but yeah, so, uh, so actually, uh, Monica is from that stock. Um, but yeah. No, I mean, it is a good thing to keep in mind because I think it is really just way too easy to imagine a bunch of Europeans because, uh, it doesn't get accented enough, uh, the origins of a lot of these people, I think. Yeah. I mean, now that you say it, I, I, I don't think I, when I imagine where they're writing from, I just thought of somewhere vaguely near Italy. I didn't think I was like, which is like horribly off, but it's like, it's probably because that's just what I thought when I was sitting in my philosophy class, which is where I first uh, at least heard of people like Augustine. But yeah, so he's sitting there with uh, the politicians. He sees he's reading some Paul uh pontician does and then he starts to tell him a story um about these two people who have this like very passionate uh conversion essentially um and then when we get to the section i see our sections are different but the part that's i guess it's 19 um I have it under 519. I don't know if that makes any sense on your numbering system. But then this is when he says to his friend Olypius, what is the matter with this? Has it come to this? Did you hear that story? Non-philosophers surge ahead of us and snatch heaven, while we, with our cold learning, we, just look at us, are still mired in flesh and blood. Just because they have got ahead, should we be ashamed to follow at all, rather than be ashamed at least into following? I was like, whoa. <laughs> I thought that, I also just thought it was funny. He's like, non-philosophers surge ahead of us and snatch heaven. And he basically like is yelling at his friend Olympias, like, wake up, what's going on? And this is where we really start to get into this, um, this kind of pr pretty deep discussion about like human psychology, motivation, will, intellect, and the relationship. Um, so we actually get some philosophy of action here, but 
Yeah. Did you have anything else to say? So for yeah, real quick. The so your translation says philosophers, which is a terrible translation because um, it's totally misleading. The indocti. So it's not just philosophers. It's those people with no education. The illiterate. Literally the illiterate. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So so literally the 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 yeah the unlearned, the illiterate, um, the uneducated. Um, they they seize heaven, and we, with our knowledge, with our education, our doctrinis, sine corde. So yes, cold. I mean, that's a way to say it, but literally without heart. Um, mm. and um, so the reason I bring that up, um, is the heart is critical for Augustine because it is the heart where Christ teaches. So one aspect where he is actually fairly Platonist um, is his account of how we know things, um, it, which I don't necessarily want to go into epistemology, um, but, but, but just suffice it to say that Augustine believed that um, like when a preacher would preach from the scriptures, he would say something and then Christ would illuminate it in their heart. Um, so knowledge without the heart is literally knowledge without God is literally knowledge without a living presence of God speaking to you in your heart. Um, okay. Yeah. Which, I mean, uh, I know you didn't want to get into the epistemology, but it is a little bit different from remembering things your soul did in a, in a previous well, he, life. Well, he, he calls, I mean, yeah. So he does sort of say that though in De Magistro. Um, he basically says it's like remembering. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. His, his account, he and Olypius say, um, how can you know, th there's like, you know, some question, how can you know something if you've never heard it? It's because you rehear it or remember it. Um, yeah. Any, hmm. yeah. See, so I mean, I would have to take him to be strictly speaking, not literally though. Whereas with Plato, I probably think he actually thought it was like remembering. Because he obviously doesn't, when he accepts Christianity, he doesn't think that the soul pre-exists. Uh, so when he accepts Christianity, so yes, this is an important point. When he accepts Christianity and in his early writings, he thinks that the soul is uh, eternal um, and existed with God before, um, before it became human, before it be took on a body. He is a pure Platonist metaphysic. Um, when he conver converts to Christianity in that regard with a me the, his metaphysic of souls is that the soul exists in the bosom of God comes to earth and then returns to God. Oh, interesting. So, okay. So he does, there is one major tenet of, uh, Platonist epistemology. He's still holding on to. Okay. So that there's a, sense. there's a debate, there's a book by, uh, Brian Doble, um, that says that Augustine actually doesn't convert to Christianity till at least five or six years after the scene in the garden, which we're about that we're discussing. Uh, that he doesn't convert to what most people would understand as sort of standard Orthodox Christianity until about five years after this point. Huh. Uh, okay. Because because he doesn't change his mind about the souls. Um, I may have brought this up before too. I can't remember, but. One thing that I would like to study further, I've only read pieces of, but he debates with Jerome how souls work and how original sin works because he knows as a Christian that he can't believe in the preexistence of souls. Um, eventually, eventually he comes to that uh, and denies that Platonist idea. 
Um, oh, so he so Augustine does eventually. Yeah, he does. Yeah, okay. but but for in uh -huh. his early writings, um, including De Magistro, he is basically yeah he he believes in the preexistence of souls. Oh, okay, that's why I was confused. Yeah. I I was under the impression he did reject it. So then, okay, okay. So he mind. does reject it eventually um, with right. Jerome. But what he says with Jerome is fascinating, and he admits this in his Retractationes at the end of his life. Um, as an old man, he says, I don't know what to make of souls and sin. Somehow we get us, we are, you know, we have, we have a soul and we have a body and it's a fallen soul and a fallen body because of sin. But I don't know how that works. Um, and he, yeah. So anyway, it's one of his great, like it, he admits, uh, his own sort of failings. Okay. That I just wanted to clarify that. Cause earlier I, I said, pretty pretty boldly that he rejected uh plate platonistic epistemology and that was because i was convinced of this point but then i didn't realize that it was so it was much later in his career but okay. uh i mean yeah the i i would maybe not much later but later <laughs> okay later. okay good 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 that we've got that straightened out yeah. now everyone knows um, yeah, because but yeah. so his like some people will discuss two Augustines, Augustine pre three ninety seven and post three ninety seven, um, and three ninety seven is the um, diverse questions to a different Simplicianus, not the Simplicianus, and uh, or at least we think it's a, a different Simplicianus from the one in the Confessions, um, and um, yeah, so after and and the Confessions is written about at that turn. Um, and so the confet yeah, so the confessions are written about the same time that he, he has this real transition away from his, um, his really, uh, uh Plato inspired, um, philosophy. Okay, cool. And that's actually, a but that is a debatable point. How much say what we're about to discuss in book eight, you know, to what degree does it look like him? as sort of the 397, 398, late 390s Augustine, um, and how different was that from the mid-80s Augustine? So his conversion happens in 386. Um, he writes this at least a decade after that. Um, so how much does he reflect what he actually thought in 386, and how much does he reflect what he later comes to believe in 397? Hmm, okay. So it's sort of a, yeah, that's a question amongst the scholars then still. Yeah. Um, but what I wanted to draw on, so, so we're talking about him in the garden. We're taught he, at one point he calls it his wordless agitation. Um, his soul is being simultaneously drawn towards God, uh, but held back in chains. Um, one way that he says this, this is a little earlier, um, uh, but it, but it fits in the whole um, scene with Olypius um, in uh, just before they go, he go just before he goes into the garden I should say um, he says um, in in part ten book eight five ten um, I myself was longing for this very thing um, that is to become a Christian um, yet I was bound not by someone else's iron change but by my own iron will. The enemy still held sway over the exercise of my will, and from that had fashioned a chain for me and bound me in fetters. In fact, my feelings of sexual desire were formed out of the perversion of my will. 
Hmm. Yeah, this man. Yeah, this clearly uh, inspired Aquinas and others because this is directly within that uh, tradition of. Well, so for Aquinas, it's there's a relationship between the intellect and will, mm-hmm. even though it's sometimes debated whether they're really just the same thing. But it's they're two like sort of mythologized kind of characters of of you. I mean, both playing part in the mind, directing each other, telling each other to do things. This is we kind of you know uh, personify them and. Uh, in order to sort of make it an easier to grasp metaphor, which by the way is an actual practice of psychology still to this day. Uh, There's still psychology done now that's done in this sort of personified way, like acting like there's characters in your mind because it's just much easier to explain what's going on. Um, And also we don't have a complete physical theory, but anyway, blah, blah, blah. That was all just to say this this is very much in line with um, this idea that the that there is a relationship between. Well, see, Augustine wouldn't quite. He doesn't quite call it intellect and will, but it's sort of like it, he calls it like a will against another will almost. Uh-huh. But that the but that the will, it's like the mind knows basically uh, some things are good yet it's sort of presenting the wrong it's like it or it's almost like you have an appetite for the good but you're presenting some things to the will's good that are not good Mm -hmm. and thus this slowly creates a process of degrading the will Mm -hmm. um aquinas literally thought like you just are born wanting the good and thus aquinas thought you were born wanting the good well, technically, he thinks the will is an appetite uh-huh. for the good, which the good for him is just the same as being. Okay. Good and being. Yeah. Good and being right. are the same right. thing. Right. Different in sense, same in referent, something like that. If you want to give it a sort of contemporary philosophical twist. Um, so, yeah, because of this, yeah, he thinks the will is in that way technically just an appetite for the good and then the intellect directs it by sort of presenting to it like options Uh that then you can form intentions for Uh if you want to say or ends uh that you then form intentions for and thus what what happens to a fool is their their intellect it's it's like a vicious cycle it's like the intellect will uh probably because of the passions or something else present something as good that isn't maybe for example you know uh, here a classic example would be like you're a nazi officer in world war ii you see the atrocity but you maybe just because you're afraid for your family or something you make a decision to do a horrible thing and then slowly but surely it just starts degrading your personality because as you start to justify things to yourself it basically becomes easier to make the wrong decision and in his sort of psychology, which, which is very similar to this Augustine account, it's it's actually because you're, um, it's it's basically because one keeps maligning the other. Mm. Once you will for this bad thing, well, now that sort of affects your intellect in ways. But then your intellect then will, which started this whole thing off by presenting the bad thing in the first place, will now just start presenting things that 
as good that aren't even more often, which then the will start willing for, but then that makes the intellect even worse. And it's so it's this vicious cycle. So and this is what eventually gets you a fool. Yeah. So I think that's exactly right. So I think Augustine wants to say that uh, to put it in Aristotelian terms, um, you're well, yeah, your intellect is, uh, so what sin is just what, or excuse me, what original sin is, uh, what the fallen nature is broadly, maybe is something like, um, you are, what's put before you are too many sinful things. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't. I don't exactly know. I don't. Uh, I don't know if it fits in that scheme. I actually now nah, maybe I want to take that back. Um, but <laughs> okay. um, I, I well, I would say this. So he said. I mean, he does say on three eighty nine. Uh, well, uh, uh, part seventeen. So it, it it appears that our what what match up with ours are the secondary numbers. Um, so mine says book yeah. eight seven seventeen, which I think would still be seventeen in yours. Um, he said. Uh, yeah. Is this. Well, yeah, say what you're going to say. So he says, For I was afraid that you would hear me straight away and would cleanse me of the disease of desiring, which I would much rather have explored than expunged. So I continued through wicked ways in my unholy superstition, certainly not because I was sure about it, but rather as if I preferred it to the other alternatives, um, which I struggled against as if they were the enemy, rather than dutifully seeking them out. Um, So... To, to me, there is something like he he has been presented the good things, um, but his will is just in, caught in such a cycle um, that when it sees the negative things, it keeps going after it. And so he has some – I mean sometimes, you know, for Augustine, it's just a divided will. Um, that's what he straight calls it that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he, he said, Well, or it's a divided animus, a divided soul really. Um, yeah, which I, I think that really you can tran- – this is why I think his view is actually very similar to Aquinas because though, you know, the traditional words are intellected will for Aquinas, it's really – in all reality, it's – you're just sort of giving names in order to explain duties of different parts of your will. Uh-huh. And really this sounds very similar to Augustine because Augustine's basically saying there are things – I willed for this way because I thought about them. That's that's what makes it kind of sound intellectual. And then, but then there was like these essentially cravings and that's what makes it sound more like appetite. And that's why I, I think in that way, it does pair nicely with this way of talking intellect versus will, if you understand will as appetite, but you can also understand will as intellective, like will being, the thing you consciously decide to form intentions to do certain actions. And that's why the, you could talk about it any way you want, but it sounds as if that another way of expressing the same thought is just, he's, he's talking about sort of the cravings he has versus the things he like knows in his mind. And it, which is very similar to like someone who um, on Aquinas' picture is a fool who is, trying to overcome that Mm -hmm. it's their intellect is now finally uh representing things to the will that are good but the will was maligned by those earlier bad uh interactions blah 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 but that but to give a real easy and obvious example this is just like someone who's smoking you know smoking kills them right i mean (laughs) it's it's a it's a pretty common sense story we hear that 
we could complicate with all sorts of language, but yeah, it's, it's just that it's, it's a more base craving like appetite that was created by earlier willings, but that now because of some sort of more conscious effort, you realize you're bad. So now you've got this, maybe even to use fancy language, like a second order willing, you will yeah, not to right. crave it anymore. You will not to will it anymore. And so, yeah, this is exactly where Augustine's at. And what's so interesting about this is he gets deep into this idea that, look, I can will my body to do things and I just instantly accomplish it. Yeah. Uh, when I want to move my hands and move my limbs in such a way. And he's, but he's so frustrated because he's like, but then why when I will for my will not to do something, my will doesn't itself move like right. that's and that part is actually still a deep, uh, interesting question for psychologists to this very day. I mean, the, this is what's so wondered at. How do we how do we change our behavior via changing our mind? Because it's not automatic. And that's so frustrating to so many people. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, so, uh, to, to your, to the point to restate this, maybe somewhat more helpfully, he says on, uh, so this is nine 21 and the very end, almost before ten twenty two. this is because the mind, um, so which is the, for him, it's this, the soul, the mind is the soul, the animus. Uh, so the animus, the soul cannot rise up completely by means of the truth for it is already weighed down with the habit. Uh, consuetudine uh, is that habitus I don't know if habitus actually exists in Augustine's Latin I can't remember uh, but t more frequently what is translated in English as habit um, is consuetudine uh, consuetudo uh, consuetudine is the ablative consuetudo um, and, and that is like custom or ha uh, habitual action oh okay uh, but I think uh, for Aquinas it's always habitus um, uh, but yeah, we can. Uh, but anyway, so this this custom, this something you keep doing, weighs down his soul and and keeps it from going to what uh, he wants to. The aigritudo animi, so the sickness of soul. Uh, just as an interesting um, um, parallel uh, or uh, or sort of side comment to this whole conversation. Uh, uh, one of the first times uh, that I had reread this since like high school um was with my friends in rome where i only spoke latin and they explained to me the aigritudino animi the sickness of soul that he was describing here is depression um and like oh. and sort of like they that's what they thought he was talking about and i was like well that's kind of right but that not really he's talking about a he's talking like to me it's exactly it's much closer to what you said about aquinas and someone who's habitually sinning, that's a different thing from the kind of uh, listlessness that happens because of depression uh, that's weighing you down. Uh, yeah, de depression's an almost complete quiescentness of your will. Right. Like, it's a complete nullifying. It's like, you just, you don't want anything anyway at all. Yeah, like, he ravenously so, yeah. wants, um, and a depressed person does not ravenously want um, yeah, no. And and so I was like, I was like, yeah, I think you guys are getting this all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it sounds like it because every everything I know about uh, de depression would suggest that 
yeah, this is not a depressed person. I mean, there are ways of, I guess, uh, addicts dealing with depression and anxiety, but but I st- a lot of them still don't describe it as then ravenously wanting things. They would describe it as like, it just as mindlessly doing a thing right. because it just felt like it was the only thing to uh, overcome the pain. So yeah, it still just doesn't quite sound like what he's describing here. So, uh, okay. So we've, we've described how Augustine feels like he's been presented with the good and the sweetness of God, but it's not enough to overcome his habitual sinning and desire for a sinful thing. Um, so he feels like he has two wills. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he says my body's limbs were moved by the soul's lightest volition receiving its direction. Yet it did not respond respond to its own eager willing so here's the question so then he says on uh uh at uh, the end of what for me is 1022 so it was no longer yeah. i who was affecting that so that is who was affecting that that is who was doing the desiring but the sin which dwelt within me arising from the punishment of a sin committed despite greater freedom de supplicio uh, librioris peccati uh, uh, so yeah, which is literally, um, a free, despite a, um, uh, a more free will or something, the punishment of a more free, of a more free sin, um, which I don't know what more free means there, but then I'll, fi- I'll finish it. Quia eram filius Adam, because I was a son of Adam. Okay. So in my, see, I've got one of these translations that's taking huge liberties in order to make it easier to understand (laughs) so my the way mine puts it is um my my exile was unwelcome to me oh yeah caused not by a second nature in me but by the cost of sin for it was no longer i that acted but the sin within me yeah my lot as adam's son and the price of his freely sinning yeah so yeah it's as if um Adam got to freely sin so that now I have this just nature so that I'm not freely sinning exactly. Yeah. So, so my question, okay, well, yeah, I have a few different questions here. One of them for you. So in, I'm trying to figure out, so it does seem like he wants to say he freely chose sex, um, in some way. And then it inhabited him so much. It made him so desire the bad thing that even when he was saw the good thing, it couldn't be sweeter um, than his bad desire that, that it was made more and more bad by the continual choosing of what was bad. Um, but what way, how does sin function? What does, what, like what for, I was trying to figure out exactly how does Adam sin uh, pu- like punish him, weigh him down. What does that mean? Where, what does it break in his desiring or in his intellect, uh, his will? Yeah. I think I know the answer. How do you read it? I, it's hard for me because I want to bring in all sorts of contemporary scientific thought on learning and how addiction is just a, just a hijacking of our learning mechanism and how we've got these like neural feedbacks going on. Like I, I, I instantly go there in my mind to be perfectly honest. And so it's so hard for me to sometimes um, 
I guess, sort out what would happen, especially because, um, surprise, surprise, I'm not like, you know, fully sure there was a first man named Adam or whatever, but that, that part aside, (laughs) uh, let's say there's a historical Adam, regardless, it, it still seems like the, for, for him, what, what seems important is that we somehow Adam was free in a way that he's not. Okay. Um, so he's still, either way, he's trying to describe how we now are and how we are now not free and yet also free the exact question you just sort of asked. So it, I would imagine that you've got to want, there's gotta be some things that you're, uh, unless, I mean, barring insanity or something, um, you would never present to your will as good. I mean, at least this is actually some things Aquinas said, like assuming other things about someone, you could assume, for example, a mother will never like sell her child for $5 or whatever to a stranger. I mean, there was all sorts of things, like assuming she's a good mother, things like that. Um, so there's ways in which sometimes you're not free to do as you otherwise would because you are built a certain way, but it's for good. And I would imagine for evil, there's gotta be certain things about us that I guess it's, it's mostly a type of selfishness, Mm -hmm. a sort of, um, self-interested motivational theory. There's obviously a lot of this happening in philosophy today a lot of people are you know egoists Mm -hmm. um in ethics because it seems like a lot of your sort of your motivations and your sort of motivational set as some people use that term um are ultimately self-interested and i think that is a, a easy way of talking about exactly what he's 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 hitting at here because what he's trying to say is I ultimately can direct parts of my body in my mind to think about and do whatever I want. But there is something about me such that something already built in such that I will still in moments choose things that are just more of my self-interest than not. Uh And I think that would explain why what he's, he's saying there is something in me such that you put me in the right situation and I will choose, for example, for him, sex over, um, God, whatever, you know, God, basically God in any way. So he doesn't quite and hate his sin enough is, is what, you know, Aquinas would want to say. Um, but again, I, a lot of this is, I, I actually think kind of maybe uh, unhelpful and unhealthy in ways, to be honest, because I think it over intellectualizes a lot of our decisions. I mean, I don't want to act like, like if you have an addiction, it's not as if you have no responsibility in it. It's just that, but it is a lot less simple than like, Oh, if you actually cared, you would quit. I mean, people, I hear people, I've heard people say that to other people. And it's like, that's not quite what's going on. Uh, 
well, that's, in an addict's mind. And that's what we still are, though. We're addicts to sin, basically. Yeah. So I, I think so, that – I don't think that Augustine – well, Augustine may be over-intellectualizing it. That, I think that may be fair. But I don't yeah. think he's saying uh, – you. he knows what he's trying to – I think what he's trying to say is he's fully aware that that it's not that he just doesn't want it bad enough. He can't overcome it. He's not sure how he can overcome it on his own. Um, he fully wants to change. He just can't. Um, and I think I think he takes that very seriously because ultimately his answer, um, for for like as I understand it, um, is that he needs God um, to to release him from this. So I'm jumping way ahead, but. Um, in 1127, um, the last full paragraph in my translation, he said it was the Lord. Okay, uh, let's see. Are you not able to do what these men, even these women do? Surely these men and women have no such power in themselves instead of in their Lord God. It was their Lord God who granted me to them. Um, he's talking about... Um, um, I think the she here is uh chastity yeah. yeah um but so so which is i mean what he's describing is grace um grace is what releases us um from this uh um from this habitual sin at least in his mind it's not ac- i think it's not actually him who does it um i so, think it's god yeah. you know you're, you're right it's you you eventually you come to hate sin and love God, and that is the gift of grace, right? That's right. And this this is also true of Aquinas's. I, I still I just feel like though when you put if you assume that all your actions are products of like very intentional and conscious desires, though that's the part that I so I probably way overspoke earlier. Yeah. What I mean to say is something a little more humble. It's just this. If you assume a lot, all your actions are produced by conscious intentions, that part is the part that I'm disagreeing with. And I think can sometimes be unhelpful because that leads us to, I think, overly demonize people with addictions, but even just ourselves, we're way too hard on ourselves. If we think often that every action we do is uh, actually and obviously within our conscious control, because I mean, I know this scares people because a lot of people don't like to hear about how little free will they sometimes have. But but I, I feel like this is actually biblical because of this whole idea of our second nature. But there are lots of things within us that uh, give us propensity to actions that aren't actually exactly within our control because we've got, well, because we're partly animals, right? And so there, there are things... Um, that that affect us that we will find ourselves performing an action and if you are let's say you are trying to overcome a a certain habit uh let's even a benign one like a dumb one that's not overtly moral or negative negative in any way you'll find that you'll just find yourself in the situation and thinking how did i get here like how did i get to the point where i was doing this when i you know decided yesterday i didn't want to do this and that's and that's exactly where we're at with also a sin and things of moral import. But um, anywho, that was all just to say, yeah, it's 
there are not not everything you do is the product of this super this conscious will and that you definitely formed an intention to do which i think sometimes a quint or huh, not quince augustine sort of overly tortures himself a little bit um but that but that that that's actually really really all i mean to say because yeah you're right grace is ultimately what lets you sort of hate your sin and love god um well so just to um I uh, in part because I love the Latin of this, um, and also it has interesting connotations in English. To go back to just talk, so to talk about this point of overintellectualization. So Augustine is trying to figure out why it is that he knows that there are good, sweet things about being a Christian and about God, um, but he really is enchained to a sexual desire. Um, so he's trying to figure out, okay, why does he have this sexual desire? Why is it so powerful? In a sense, why has he overcome his even another desire that he had for worldly ambition? I think we can't forget that that's also in view. He mm -hmm. by himself has actually overcome one negative ambition, um, but he has not been able to overcome this other one, um, which I, I think is part of the equation. But just just for fun uh so he tries to figure out what what is going on with inside him and i think he's kind of over intellectualizing it by trying to tell you what's going on but i think he also knows that it's not intellectual so the latin for uh this is uh 8 9 21 um the latin is unde hoc monstrum et qua re istuc uh, which he repeats twice um so that is where from where, where does this monster come from and what is this weird thing <laughs> uh, why is it here <laughs> uh and so like he literally calls himself a monster like i mean in our english is monstrum uh it's it's the it's a mon or in the latin it's monstrum which the first english word is monster um and he's he doesn't he doesn't know he's like it's not it's not my intellect um, it's not what I know. It's not even maybe what I intend. I will it. Um, and, and I, the will is all messed up, but it's, um, it's this monster that I can't deal with. Uh, okay. That, you know, you're, you're explaining the Latin actually makes me just realize that my translation gave me this impression because the way my translation puts that same section is that it's the mind versus the mind. Um, but when you use that more poetic language and you explain the poetic language you used, that does seem to actually coincide more with what we know about people now and, and about what we really feel about these actions when we perform them. It's, and that's exactly what, you know, Paul said, who will rescue me from this body of sin and death, um, in Romans. So, okay. That that does make more sense so it's it seems like it was just my translation's fault well it i mean i you know there there are other problems my translation at one point translates um uh carne uh carnalia as physical um and and i was like it, it is the most uh like blind or uh, mistaken translation because Augustine compares the carnalia to the spiritalia, um, the spiritual things with the carnal things or fleshly things. Um, and to say that it's spiritual versus physical is to totally miss the point. It's not a question of what is material or immaterial. Uh, it is a distinction between what are the things of God and what are the things of this fallen world. 
Um, and it's clearly, you know, it resonates with how um, the, the distinction between the carne, uh, between carnis uh, and spiritus in First Corinthians 15. Um, and it's just like, uh, or, or in Romans 7. Uh, and I was just like, man, whoever did this. So uh, Hammond is the guy who did my translation. It's like, it's just so, like, if you don't know the theology or the scripture, uh, you could, Carolyn Hammond, um, she, she, I mean, just butchered it. Um, and I was just, I was just like, like, how, how can you, ah, how can you read through this whole book? Not, and, and not understand that the scripture, I mean, she quotes a lot of the scripture, but like that one is just so blind. Um, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's well, so yeah, so I I realize now that like as I'm reading mine, mine because like I said, mine's well, my translations by Gary Wells, which by the way is overall like nice to read. I actually yeah. really like this, but it does try to make things I think a lot easier for a contemporary speaker of English to understand, um, and puts it in a very easy flowing English, like mo- like how we actually speak today uh-huh. kind of way. So that's, but the, it, it shows the mind commanding the mind and yet failing to command its own self. Like that's the language of 21 basically for me. Uh-huh. And so that's what made me feel like, wow, that is kind of right, but kind of wrong. It's like in a lot of ways, at least in the traditional way of thinking about the mind uh, as like this, conscious decider um it seems because what because what does really happen in someone is that yeah you've got these you've got sort of processes you've created in your mind that Uh are just going to run on autopilot because a lot of actions you actually perform are automatic um they have to be automated otherwise you wouldn't (laughs) there wouldn't be learning that's kind of what learning is so um anywho yeah, I that was that was my whole point. That was my only point. But it, this whole section, though, just on a completely different point now, is very interesting because it's it's the classic problem of seemingly having two minds within man, and it's the simple solution. But he just does it in such a the way he talks about it is just is just really beautiful. It's like. I have I seem to have these two wills and then the simple solution being the the one that's I mean I call it simple as and it's the one that's always explained but that essentially you uh, your will is arrested um or or sort of reined in by the fact that you finally come to the point where you accept grace and then that's able to change uh your will um which Aquinas had this like really pretty complicated picture of because he still wanted you to freely get it yet it need to be you need to do it somehow but it also needed to be wholly on god's part um so his idea was that you're you come to a point where you don't will anything you sort of passively accept mm-hmm. i feel like this is also kind of lutheran theology if i'm not mistaken right it's it's sort of like you you know, it's like someone who is definitely afraid of needles, but who um, knows they need this inoculation, 
And so what do you do? You fight it, you fight it, you fight it, but you just finally get to the point where you stop fighting. You're not actively sitting there approaching the needle. You're not asking for it either quite. Um, but you're also not running away anymore. Yeah. And so you finally just sit still and let the needle hit you. And that, that, that inoculation is like the grace, basically. It's like you finally get to the point where, and that's, I, am I mistaken? Is that basically Luther's picture as well, from what I understand? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he doesn't quite say it that way. He tells it like it's a story. Like, yeah, he talks to Lady, uh, mine calls it Lady Self-Control, but he called it <laughs> Chastity. Yeah, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's us. yeah. Um, but it's, you know, so he more personifies it, and it's like, it finally it's like he talks to her and she goes hey like do you think all these people that did all these great things before you stood alone it's like no you know god did this in them and that's when he finally realizes uh the need for grace but yeah well so uh just uh one sort of interesting thing about the question of freedom in all of this I think this might be a, a little a little bit of an overreading of confessions, but I'm I'm trying to figure it out if I think I, I think it's right. Um, in eight twenty four or uh, a ten twenty four, he goes through. He says um, he starts talking about these opposing wills, um, and um, yeah, he's talking about the Manichaeans having the wrong view here. Yeah, and so I think, he I don't know if he actually calls any of this free, but he says, therefore, when they perceive two opposing wills in a single person, they should no longer say that two contrary minds form two contrary substances, and from two contrary origins are in conflict. One is good as the other evil. For you, God of truth, condemn those people and confound and conquer them. For instance, in a case where both wills are evil. So he talks about all these things that are evil, like you, you know, you get a choice um, between how you kill someone or how you get money. Um, and you can have different wills um, and opposing wills and presumably choose, but it's all just evil. Um, and then the same thing can happen for good. Um, yeah, it's like this argument that against the Manichaeans who seem to think that if you have these two opposing sort of intentions, I think it's easier to call them that one just must be for something good and one must be for something evil. And he's just like, well, that's obviously BS. There's, you can reason your way to an evil end in multiple ways. Yeah. And thus you can form multiple evil wills and similarly multiple uh, good wills. And well, okay. So yeah, I think maybe that's right. But I was sort of thinking like, I wonder if, he doesn't ever call it freedom in that section, but I wonder if this is why. So to go back to the section that I read about Adam, he talked about uh, um, libriori, uh, libriori's peccati. Um, so the the punishment of a more free sin. Um, so what would it make it more free? Um, so that's the section just before what we were talking about. What would make that more free? Well, it's more free because there are more options, uh, maybe. I don't know. Um, mm. And so this section would say, well, there are still options for evil. So it's free. You're making a choice among things. Um, you just can't choose the good. Um, so you're not the truest free, but you are free in some secondary sense. Um, I don't know. Uh, hmm. Like, cause that's, 
that's one way that you can construe um, responsibility and freedom and also enslavement to sin. Um, so part of this is all a way of trying to answer the question, what is the punishment of Adam on our will? What does original sin mean? Um, and how do we suffer those punishments? Well, maybe we're free, and so we're responsible because we choose among evils. When we're liberated by grace, we can now choose the good, and we can choose it freely because we have options. It's just not necessarily all the options on the table. Um, and so we are limited, uh, but we're also different in a case from Adam. Adam was more free. Um, so so I, was, I was actually taking it to mean, because of this discussion of the mind getting to direct his limbs uh -huh. any which way, yeah, he couldn't direct his own his own mind or his own willings. We could we could talk about it in mind or will language uh -huh. either way. It's like his will directly gets what it wants when he wants to like interlock his fingers and move in certain ways. He says he was thrashing about. Uh -huh. He's like, I, I could do any of this. I could I could tear at my hair, but I couldn't just will my will to get to a certain point. I thought maybe Adam was exactly more free because maybe Adam was able that was what Adam had that we will still never have. It's like Adam was able to will his will to do things uh -huh. in this way without grace. Uh -huh. um, yeah. And that was why, yeah, he was more. So actually you're right as well. Cause then he would also then be more free to go either direction. Right. He could will his will to go, but once he willed it in one way, it's like we all got sort of stuck and that's what we inherited. Yeah. I don't know. I think so. Okay. Uh, okay. Interesting. And there's a literally a block um, there's there's an impediment, and that is the punishment of sin um, uh, from us from choosing all the good things. Right, and that's be yeah, and this is precisely because he doesn't explicitly say this, but it's because we we must so somehow innately crave things that are going to be. We innately crave things, and some of those things can be for, are going to end up being like abusable uh -huh. and bad, and then you don't have the power alone to get your will out of that cycle. Yeah. And that's, so that's it. And this is, um, I mean, so one, you know, one just sort of general interesting point, we talk about salvation um, and usually it's sort of like salvation means escape from this life into heaven. Right. Um, yeah. I think it's important that for Augustine self, this is salvation is very imminent. Um, salvation is a, a rescue, a healing, a rescue from yourself now, from the habits of sin. So salvation has a very um, imminent and present and mo like in the moment kind of um, deliverance. You are delivered from yourself, from the habits of sin. Um, and, and so sal that is salvation. Um, and so now you, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. I could signal to stop okay. the dog. Okay. So anyway, um, yeah, no, uh, remembering what you just said, it's that part, that sounds right. It sounds like, um, it, it's, it's a much more, well, I mean, in terms of, yeah, how I was like, raised at the church I went to where they did just focus on salvation as merely 
yeah, it's sort of just destinational. Right. It's sort of like you're, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna be. Well, I don't know. I, it's, it's hard to say. It's, it's just more like they didn't accent the fact that you would change in this life. They do to a certain extent, right? They want the, you know, any real Christian church right, is gonna somewhat expect you to repent of certain actions, right? So in that sense, um there's going to be a change in, in your life, of course, action wise, but it does end up becoming like pretty, it's, it's a, it's a much more shallow and like less tactile thing. It's like, as long as you're kind of like smiling, happy at, on Sunday and you show up there and you say, everything's good. They're kind of just like, it's all good. Yeah. And a church that goes deeper, of course, will have actual maybe groups to talk about, real problems um, that you have in your life. And that's sort of more speaks to this point, but yeah, for him, uh, this, this makes it really real, really applicable. And to me, really what at least how I understand it, really what the work of Christ is in your life right now, which is to exactly do this for you to, uh, help you, uh, essentially hate the way I like to think of it is yeah, just hate these evil things and love God instead. Um, and if, if God really is like, you know, all goodness, that that's what you're overcoming. It's, and it's gonna, it should play out in your life in all sorts of ways, everything from the obvious stuff, you know, not like not wanting many concubines, but also it's, but it's also like, you know, not, uh, uh, you know, saying really horrible things to people online um, I, I, that just make you feel good because, you know, it hurt the other person. I don't know. There's there's a lot of ways in which I find this, um, my like my old self finds this really works focused, uh, which is what, yeah. you know, which was an evil of the evangelical That's right. Protestant church I grew up in. Yet this is obviously what, what Christ has got to ultimately be saving you from though, because it cert yeah, certainly there's a, a heaven, but uh, what good is that? If you're not conquering, you, you got to be conquering this evil in your life now, because otherwise, you know, very obviously we don't accept someone who just commits horrible atrocities and yet claims they're a Christian and thus neither uh, would would we say someone is, you know, um, doing what Christ said when he said, I hope that they can be perfect as I and the father are perfect. If you're not also trying to overcome the sin and death in your life now. So anyway, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I, I like this message a lot was what all that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a couple different things that are interesting to me about it. One. Yeah. I mean, I think oftentimes sort of Protestant scholasticism in response to the reformation and um, maybe more reformed people that I knew grew out of this, the council of the synods of Dort and these sorts of things where you get tulip um, faith becomes um, well, maybe, maybe you could say sort of um, in a world where everyone is a version of Christian, the most important thing is to get your theology straight about what makes you different from the other Christians. Um, so absent a world of the distinction being Christian, non-Christian, but Christian, various forms of Christian, 
you make the dis- you you make the conversion process the becoming a christian process of becoming the right kind of christian with the right kind of beliefs um whereas for augustine becoming a christian is being converted from a life that knows nothing of the pursuit of true goodness um and so you're you're you are you know there are certain right beliefs about who god is and about what the good is um but but those things are now set before you as something that that changes your whole direction um and you you desire something totally different um because you might think on the view of sort of protestant scholasticism and sort of um 17th 18th 19th century um you know like reformed uh theologians it's it, the question isn't uh, they they all sort of desire the same things and living the good life probably all seems the same. What's interesting is minute differences, um, and so you're all headed in the same direction. You all agree uh, that there are certain kind of sinful things that are evil, um, and so your whole emphasis is just different. Um, where I think what Augustine is trying to say is something like, "Yeah, you you know, conversion, becoming a Christian." is is about knowing who god is uh, but it's knowing about who god is to change all these other things in your life um that are already agreed upon by you know later reformed and maybe evangelical people in the kind of world that i grew up in where christianity was getting your beliefs straight um yeah and and, and it had other elements um but but yeah uh i don't know that that's kind of how I look at it. So I think it can. The hard part is it definitely can be um, sort of works righteousness kind of thing. Um, and Augustine's sermons lean that way sometimes. It's one of the things that I struggle with when I look at his sermons is how frequently he just says you need to do things, you need to like change your lives, and you need to get this right. And and it kind of looks like the promise of heaven is contingent on you changing your whole life. Um, and, and that sort of seems problematic, but it also sort of makes sense for him in that he, like his conversion was a man who was enslaved to his passions of sex, um, and was no longer, um, and which to me raises the very question, the reason why you might want to avoid talking about salvation in these terms, what if God doesn't deliver you? What if I'm addicted to sex my whole life, even though I believe the right things about God? Yeah, see, this is what makes me feel like you do need a more nuanced, middle ground type response. And I remember when studying uh, Aquinas' answer to this question, it made me feel like, well, you know, if the stories are true about Aquinas, it's like, well, good for you, Aquinas, that you, uh, when the prostitutes were sent to your room you chased them off with a hot poker or whatever but it's like not it that's seemingly easy for everyone um and a, a lot of this has to do with you know it some of it could have to do with genetics but a huge part of it is obviously just your environment that you're raised in which is often obviously not your decision um so Many things can screw with your ability to, um, you know, or self basically to have self control, as we call it. Yeah. And what level you end up having it. And thus, I feel like 
I feel like it, like I said, it is a more hopeful picture knowing that Christ can deliver me from like evil decisions now, which is what I want. Yet, yeah, I need that picture to be consistent with me being saved, even though I still suck. Like that, both of those things have to be held together somehow. And obviously Augustine overcame like this huge, uh, for him at least, because obviously it's, he brings it up so often. It's huge to the forefront of his mind. This sort of bigger sin, this one that was seemed to always, you know, hold on to him uh, even late into his life. Um, so it seems like it's a primary focus. So maybe because he gets delivered from this, he focuses on it a lot. But, but of course, you've, you've mentioned also that he, he overcomes sin of pride and a few other sins. But I feel like there would still be, you know, for Augustine, he's still got to recognize like those minor moments where he just thinks a thought he shouldn't have thought or, um, you know, realizes his attitude was bad that day. I, you know, there's all sorts of ways that you're, you're still, you're still going to choose the wrong thing. And so what, yeah. What do you say about that? I mean, God gave you the grace. So it was only over to come really big, obvious sins. It's like, well, no, it, this is what makes me think it's more process-like, which I've heard some people try to give that sort of spin on Aquinas. It's like you finally get the inoculation of grace, but the, it's like you have a sickness that requires many inoculations um, and throughout a lifetime such that even if like right now you still display symptoms, uh, you actually are being healed. Yeah. That's basically... And that's and so i yeah which i doubt you know I'm, I'm using all these medical metaphors and adding a lot of things yeah i'm not sure augustine had that quite that picture and obviously we're not like going through all his works right here but it's um it's hard it's hard to think about what to think of augustine's view um well um, I am running out of time. Um, this is also contains this chapter also contains the famous garden scene where Augustine's uh, walks. He leaves Olympias. He can't contain all of these thoughts that we have just discussed. <laughs> um, and a little girl says to him, "Tole lege, tole lege." Pick up and read. Um, and somewhere in this process of reading scripture. Um, it's sort of like grace comes to him and he's released um, and from, from these, uh, these old habits. Uh, and he tells Olympias what happens. He shows him the passage. Um, and Augustine basically now has become a Christian and they go run and tell his mother. Um, and that's the end of book eight. Um, for a lot of people, the next nine through 13 form the second half of the book. Um, so this will have to suffice for our end of book eight. And some people will say this is uh, the, the book starts over with book nine. Um, but right. Or the, the, yeah. Yeah, the whole the whole of the work, I guess, ter- changes with book nine. This is because, yeah, book nine, this is when we start to get into his baptism. Yeah. Right? Thanks for listening to A History of Christian Theology. We'll be back next time with book nine. Um, And we will sort of finish the autobiographical section of the confessions and then move on to some sort of philosophical uh, inquiries. Um, Please rate us, review us on iTunes, uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, We appreciate all your support.